I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. Coming up, winter raptors and the Christmas bird count. We were the first people who found out that bald eagles were feeding on prairie dogs in winter. When we told that to the Division of Wildlife, they said, no, bald eagles don't eat prairie dogs, they eat fish. And Gaia theory, model and metaphor for the 21st century. Species come, species go. And so it goes back to that, do we value our being here? So it's kind of like save the humans, not save the planet. We'll head into news about science today with new findings about sports and injuries to heads. I'm Benita Lee. Permanent and sometimes deadly brain damage is now a well-known hazard of playing professional football. But head injuries can also cause lasting damage among kids who only play football through high school. Even if they wear helmets, even if coaches or friends assure someone who feels dizzy or disoriented after a head impact that getting your bell rung, an analogy about getting a concussion, is part of being an athlete. New research released today by the Radiological Society of North America makes a stronger case than ever that it's not just football players who run the risk of brain damage from head impacts. What's more, the damage may not require a full concussion. Soccer heading where players hit the ball with their head also can lead to a measurable decline in the microstructure and function of the brain, even if there's never a full concussion. And the more head hits, the more damage. The new research compared the brain structure and cognition of over 100 amateur soccer players in groups of low to high headers. The high heading group, meaning over 1,500 headers in two years, had the most brain change. And on verbal learning tests, they also had the greatest decline in ability after two years. The scientists conducting these studies cautioned that head impacts in young adulthood, including soccer heading, may increase the risk for neurodegeneration and dementia later in life. This study was just released today by the Radiological Society of North America. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. If you like birds and science, you can be part of Citizen Science by joining Audubon Society's annual Christmas bird count. Boulder County will do their count on Sunday, December 18th. Boulder County Audubon assures that all are welcome, even those who think they know little about birds. For more information, go to your local Audubon website. In advance of the annual Christmas bird count, Teen Naturalist recently helped with a raptor survey in Boulder County. Over a dozen teens gathered for this event, which started near the busy street of Valmont Road east of town, on the way to the White Rocks Trail. Leading the group were two experts in raptors, naturalist Steve Jones and KGNU volunteer Elena Claver. Let's listen in, starting with Steve explaining to the group what they're going to do. This is part of an ongoing 40-year study of wintering raptor populations in Boulder County. I think it's the longest-running study in North America. Which Steve helped to start. You won't 
say that, but I will. <laughs> oh, and so did Elena, for that matter. We were the first people who found out that bald eagles were feeding on prairie dogs in winter. When we told that to the Division of Wildlife, they said, no, bald eagles don't eat prairie dogs, they eat fish. And that was really important information because where we find the bald eagles in winter are around the prairie dog colonies. We also found that northern harriers nesting were in big trouble in Boulder County, and I think we have actually saved them by preserving their nesting habitat. So I need three volunteers to map today's observations. Okay, I'll take falcons. You're taking falcons. Who would like to do all the hawks? Some one of you who loves red-tailed hawks. Okay. I'm Owen. I'm doing the map of the falcons and also the northern harrier. My name is Lucian, northern harrier hawk. They're really interesting birds. They nest on the ground, and they usually hunt swamplands and marshes and prairies, so they fly like close to the ground. They're really pretty. They have a pale belly. Their tail feathers are multicolored. Their body and wings are sort of brown. They have really good eyesight, so when they see it, they're going down and getting that vole or rabbit or prairie dog. Okay, here we go. We are going to be walking the White Rocks Trail and recording all the raptors we see, so falcons, eagles, hawks, and we're going to be plotting the location so that we can know where these raptors winter in Boulder County. I see a couple really exciting European starlings. Here comes a mature bald eagle, everyone. Oh, yep, bald eagle. Might be mom or dad of the two that we saw on the way down. My name is Elena Claver, and when I was driving down here this morning from Niwot, there were two immature bald eagles sitting right on 95th Street, and there were some other teen naturalists from Hygiene that were also stopped, so we got some very nice looks and pictures. <laughs> um, a possible red tail hawk's nest. Up in this tall cottonwood, I think, kind of in this like V-shaped tree branch crook. Big, bushy pile of neat sticks. Hi, I'm Mia. I went on the raptor survey last year, and I saw that this one was going on. I was like, I want to go. I want to go hang out with some bird people and see some birds. It's always more fun to do it in groups than on your own. <laughs> At least for me, I'm just, like, obsessed with birds. I really want to go into ornithology when I'm older. I go out, I look for birds, I take photos. My favorite raptor is the Cooper's hawk and the American kestrel. Cooper's hawk was kind of my love-hate relationship with them. They would show up and then they'd leave when I got my camera out. So it's always one of those birds I've been striving to get a photo of. They're like, I mean, they're medium-sized. Not massive, but they're, they're pretty large. Northern Harrier hawk. Yep. Flying. Yeah, it's like the old corn. It's flying a little bit back and left just in front of some trees down there. Looks like a female. Or oh, it just perched. Yeah, just perched on a post. It's an adult bald eagle. Up, there's an adult bald eagle, and there's somebody sitting in the nest. There's also a magpie up there. One of the eagles on the nest is eating something. The magpies are jumping around trying to get some leftovers. That's what they do. And there are two adult bald eagles. So we have like a printout of a Google map and we're logging everywhere we see a, um, a raptor. And I have the bald eagle sheet, so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, so right now we have a pair of bald eagles. They look like they might be building a nest, and so we're going to try to figure out where they are 
on our map so we can log that. Okay, everyone, I have the scope on this nest. Come on over, anyone who wants to see the nest. An immature bald eagle flying around just flew over and, and scared up all of the starlings. It's flying way left. It's continuing to fly. Let's see. Flying, 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 flying. I'm about to lose it behind a tree. And it just scared up all of the starlings. European starlings. Uh, immature bald eagles typically don't have white on their head. They're mostly like brown colored. Feathers are kind of disheveled and stuff because they're like in a transition moment and growing a bunch. Bald eagles are still protected in Boulder County, but they're not highest priority because nesting bald eagles, to our knowledge, aren't native to Boulder County. There was no water out here. There were no lakes and ponds in eastern Boulder County except for two shallow, they call them playa ponds. There weren't all these trees either. So in a way, you could think of bald eagles being an invasive species. However, their North American population is still just a fraction of what it would have been before Europeans got here. So they're still protected. They're beautiful birds, and we love to see them. And we have about, oh, maybe 11 or 12 nesting pairs in Boulder County. We're not doing very good today. We've seen bald eagles, northern harrier. Usually we, we get more than that. But now we've usually probably have seen like eight. So we got to get on it, huh? Four bald eagles and a uh, harrier so far. No retails. Well, we call them retails because they're a dime a dozen. They're urban adapted generalists and they sort of just take over. On warmer days, we really get a lot of these thermals, which are like rising columns of warm air. And that is really easy for raptors to just get on and ride up and up and up for them to hunt. They might be flying way high up in the sky right now, and we can't see them. Yes, uh, Owen was saying they're way up there somewhere, and we're just not sighting them. The best days are when it's about zero out here, and today it's about 45. Uh, we'll see more. The Boulder Audubon Tea Naturalist program has been going for 10 years, and as you hear, we have some real expert students in this program. And it was actually founded by three of our most expert birders in Boulder County who were students at the time. And it's open to anyone who's in middle school or high school, or if they're a little before or beyond, uh, we'll make accommodations and just go to our website, Boulder County Audubon Tea Naturalist program. Thanks to Boulder naturalist Steve Jones and Elena Claver and all the teen naturalists who helped with this raptor survey. By the end of the day, Steve Jones reports that the teen naturalists achieved a new high for raptors on this particular survey, capped by a ferruginous hawk who soared in from the north and circled over the parking lot after most of the group had left. Their totals for the day were three northern harrier, five golden eagles, one ferruginous hawk, 11 red-tailed hawks, also fondly known as retail hawks, because they're so common in our area. You can find out more about bird surveys and Boulder's Tea Naturalist program by going to the Boulder County Audubon website. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. This Thursday evening, the Lafayette Public Library presents naturalist Martin Ogle for Gaia Theory, Model and Metaphor for the 21st Century. 
The event will include music by the Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra and a panel of experts from the community. How do new scientific understandings of Earth as a living system intersect with cultural understandings, ancient and new? What implications do new insights into our human relationship with Earth have as we grapple with our future? Martin Ogle brings a 37-year career as a naturalist, earth scientist, and storyteller to these questions this Thursday evening at the Lafayette Public Library. For more, here's Martin Ogle. Gaia is the same thing as Geo. It's the Greek goddess of Earth, and it was the name selected for a scientific theory way back in the 60s. What did the theory say? The scientist James Lovelock had been working with NASA to find out whether or not there was life on Mars. And what he came to the conclusion was, was that it wasn't whether there was life on the planet. It was whether the planet was a living system. And he quickly came to the idea of Earth as a living system, one single living system. So instead of Mars scientists looking for crickets or bacteria in the soil, what did James Lovelock say to look for? He chose to look at the atmospheric content and to see whether it was in disequilibrium, whether it was in an unexpected level of different uh, atmospheric constituents. And if it was, there could be a good sign that there was life. Our atmosphere here on Earth, it seems pretty regular. It always has the same stuff in it. We do. We have an incredible balance over time, like, for instance, oxygen. But oxygen is incredibly reactive, and it should be taken out of the atmosphere extremely quickly. Why is it at 21% and not near zero? Oh, on a planet like Mars, the oxygen level is zero? At or near zero. The constituent is mostly carbon dioxide, and it's what we might call a flatline atmosphere. It's kind of like a EKG gone flat. But the Earth has a system where somehow we keep pumping oxygen back up into the atmosphere. What does disequilibrium mean? Rather than getting real technical, just say kind of unexpected. You don't expect to see oxygen at 21%. You don't expect to see carbon dioxide, which should eventually fill up the atmosphere at such a tiny level. On a dead planet or a non-living planet, you would see lots of carbon dioxide. You'd see other things, but you would not see oxygen. Yeah, very little oxygen. There's trace amounts. Well, that's one example of what Gaia theory can do is help us look at systems this way and planets. How did James Lovelock come up with the name Gaia? This is really interesting. He went back to England after he's done working with NASA, and his neighbor was none other than William Golding, who wrote the book Lord of the Flies that you know so many people in the United States have read. It was Golding who suggested the name Gaia because he said it was the most powerful idea he'd ever heard, and he suggested a powerful name. Gaia, the Greek goddess of Earth, he said, would honor the fact that Western science was now rediscovering what our Western ancestors knew at an indigenous gut mythic level, that the Earth was alive in some sense, and that we are part of it. My mind is pausing for a little bit. The guy who wrote Lord of the Flies, that dark book about how kids on a desert island, they're ruthless with each other, they're sadistic, they're mean, they kill some kids, they're just awful. A guy who put together that kind of an idea and won a Nobel Prize for stories like that helped name this kind, gentle Gaia hypothesis. 
it's a very interesting part of the story, I think extremely significant, because Golding came out of World War II. He was a naval officer with a supremely pessimistic view of, of human nature, hence Lord of the Flies. It was written in the 50s. But then, after he heard James Lovelock's idea, he came to be an optimist. In fact, when he was given that Nobel Prize in the early 80s, one of the first things he said was that people thought he was coming to Sweden as a pessimist, although he's an optimist. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the program. In the program that you'll do on November 30th, there at the Lafayette Public Library. Yeah. It's important that people know some of the discoveries that Guyan scientists brought back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's now really a part and parcel of Earth system science. But we can't stop at the science. We need the metaphors and delving into the ways that human beings think and act and behave. Looking at this metaphor Gaia is really important. You have kids in high school? Yeah, yeah. my daughter's reading Lord of the Flies right now. She's reading it in high school. Yes. Well, I did too. Are her teachers explaining to her that the Lord of the Flies, the guy who wrote it, later changed his mind about whether people are inherently ruthless and mean to each other always? I don't think they're looking at that. We certainly didn't when we read it. And the problem is that to the extent that we do talk about the pessimism of the author, most teachers don't even think about whether he was still pessimistic over the years. And in fact, all the reviews I've seen online of how a teacher covers Lord of the Flies in high school shows that William Golding was a pessimist at the time of his death. And that's just not true. And in fact, there's a lot that scientifically invalidates the idea that this is how people would treat each other on a desert island. There are studies and anecdotal information about kids who get stranded on a desert island, and the reports come back that they quite often cooperate and they make sure that everybody's okay. That's a real interesting study that I'd heard as well. I think the point here is that we have kind of internalized the idea that human nature is just competitive. I wouldn't say that we're not competitive, but a big part of the Gaia theory is brought to us by microbiologist Lynn Margulis. She was the one that discovered endosymbiosis, the fact that all the little parts of a cell inside the cell used to be formerly free-living organisms. And over time, there's been this symbiosis between these different organisms and then between cells and then organ systems to the extent where life is very much symbiotic and cooperative, at least in our human language, as well as being competitive. Symbiotic, cooperative, competitive, not always kumbaya. <laughs> not always kumbaya. And in fact, that's the mix of that's the best description of human nature, I think. If I can be blunt, Lynn Margulis used to say that Gaia was a tough bitch. She meant by that that Gaia has no conscious feelings for us as human beings. In other words, human beings are the ones that need to take responsibility for our own actions, our own emotions, our own education, etc., and then figure out how to do the right thing by our own selves. Are you saying that people could become planet whisperers? Planet whisperer, that's an interesting concept to help to explore. The idea, I think, is that before human beings, nature could be described as the Chinese word for it is of itself so. It's the same word as spontaneous. And it just happens. There's no forethought. There's no planning. 
human beings, when we got this amazing ability to look at the future, sense time, sense ourselves, sense our own death, anthropologists tell us that along with that came a large degree of abstract thought, you know, like religion and stories and explanations of how the world came to be and what our role is in it. So now the consciousness of Earth is us. And in fact, I named my single proprietorship company when I moved out here to Colorado, Entrepreneurial Earth. I did that because I feel like human beings are Earth's conscious creativity. To me, it mostly puts the onus on us. It says we need to be responsible for understanding our own situation and our own fate. We can't count on the planet to keep us here. No. When it comes to our own fate, we need to realize that we're the ones in control. We can build skyscrapers. We can add pollutants to the air where we're aware of what those pollutants might do. And maybe not only add them, but also be aware of maybe there's ways to take them out of the air. Yeah, not only take them out of the air, but live in different ways where we're not putting them in there to begin with. Our conscious thought extends to our ability to feel that we're a part of the earth or to neglect that. The point that I'm making about the importance of the metaphor is that when our conscious mind admits to itself that it's not the only thing going and that there's other you know, emotional and other non-scientific, non-reasoning ways of understanding ourselves as part of a living system, then we can commit ourselves to do things that we couldn't if we didn't employ our reasoning and our emotions. Martin Ogle, you've had presentations like this that you've done where you actually have some of these world thinkers on the Gaia hypothesis, one of them being Lynn Margulis. Yeah, back in 2006, uh, colleagues and I put together a conference uh, at the George Mason University. We had not only Lynn Margulis, but a lot of other top scientists that have studied this idea, but also historians and playwrights and poets that brought this other side of our being to the fore. Participants really enjoyed our multifaceted exploration of our relationship to the earth. And it sounds like you'll be doing some of that with your presentation that will be at the Lafayette Public Library, which will include, you mentioned a couple of high school students that may be familiar to our listeners if they listen to that other radio station, Colorado Public Radio, who had on a couple of teen naturalists or teen Earth system scientists. It turns out they have trained with you. Yeah, on that uh, CPR story, it was about something called the All Careers Initiative. And that idea says that we need to take our best understanding of Earth and environment and apply that to everything we do, not just the quote-unquote environmental careers that people might think of as being forester or ranger or environmental scientist. The two young ladies that will be a, a part of this program on the 30th were active in that All Careers Initiative and were featured in the story. And they'll be there on Thursday to talk with and present to the audience who comes to the Lafayette Public Library. They and a number of other people I've invited are going to give what we're calling mini-vignettes that will highlight some aspect of the program. We do have a gentleman who's from the Navajo Nation who will give a thought on how indigenous learning is carried out. 
We also have two musicians from the Boulder Philharmonic that will really help us make this a truly rounded program between science and our emotional sides. Music has sometimes been said as a way to turn thoughts into feelings. I think that's a great way of putting it. I I just have always enjoyed music myself and have often incorporated it into programs that I do. Some people may know the name Paul Winter. He was the one that composed the Misa Gaia many, many decades ago, and he came and performed at the conference that we had. Martin Ogle, at your presentations, you said that sometimes people ask you, well, if we're part of the consciousness of Gaia, planet Earth, Mother Earth, if we do something wrong, won't Mother Earth protect us? Hmm. Yeah, that's a misconception that every once in a while comes up during programs and someone will say, well, doesn't the Gaia theory tell us that we can basically do whatever we want because balance will be established? probably different balances will be uh, established, just like has always occurred through the history of our planet. But there's no guarantee that we'll be a part of it. Species come, species go. And so it goes back to that, do we value our being here? So it's kind of like save the humans, not save the planet. Thank you for joining us. Our guest has been Martin Ogle. He's going to be doing a presentation on Thursday the 30th at the Lafayette Public Library What time is that presentation? At 6.30. It's at 6.30. We'll link to Martin's website on our website. Yeah, and people can go to the Lafayette Library webpage to see their events and find it there as well. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions from Bonita Lee. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Hovannis and Paul Winter. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>